the one that I learned about as in college was this thing called a horsehair worm. is a parasite that grows up inside the, the body of a cricket. And it, when it wants to come out, it's an aquatic worm. It has to emerge in water. And it's, it's inside of an animal that lives on land. And so it takes over the mind of the cricket. It forces it to find a puddle of water so that the parasite can safely emerge in the water. That's Anand Varma talking about a type of zombie parasite that he photographed for a National Geographic cover story. Now, that may sound kind of out there, but zombie parasites are just the sort of thing we've come to expect from Anand. Want a picture of a hummingbird's tongue? Or slow-motion video of a vampire bat catching a mouse? We've got Anand on speed dial. I'm Peter Gwynn, and you're listening to Overheard at National Geographic. And for more than a year... You've heard me introduce this as a show where we eavesdrop on the wild conversations we have here at Nat Geo. A lot of those conversations are about scientific expeditions or other interesting questions we're chasing after. But some of the astonishing stories we hear are about our contributors and their personal journeys. So today we've got something a little different. We're going to meet one of the people we send out to the edges of our big, weird, beautiful world. I recently sat down with Anand to talk about some of his exploits, photographing the bizarre world of insects, including raft-building ants and those mind-controlling parasites. His Nat Geo assignments have taken him to all sorts of far-flung places, but he embarked on his first natural history adventures much closer to home, behind a shopping mall in suburban Atlanta. I grew up in the suburbs of Atlanta, and what that meant is that I had a lot of space to roam. And so it meant that I could go out in the backyard, and typically I was following my older brother and sister Mm -hmm. down to the creek behind the house and flipping over rocks and finding salamanders and snakes and crayfish and whatever else was out there. And so one of my close friends is uh, Gene Henry, and one of our weekend activities, we would pull up MapQuest at the time that before that Google Maps took off, right. you had MapQuest, and you turn on the satellite imagery function, and you just basically find the biggest patch of green you could drive to. Yeah. And say, all right, what's in the middle of that? And we just drive there and wander off. <laughs> or, or we'd just head out behind the school or behind the house and hit the creek and just see how long we could follow it. Yeah, right. And so much of this was floodplain that you couldn't really build on. Yeah. So you'd pop out behind the mall or behind some freeway and you, there'd be beavers and uh, cottonmouths and like all these yeah. this crazy wildlife, you know, <laughs> behind the mall. <laughs> right, right, and right. Um, it just meant that there was an endless landscape to explore. So what's the next step? So what, how did you, how did you go from, from that childhood to, to, so, to college? I mean, did you? Sure, sure. I mean, college, you know, at that point I was still very focused on, a path towards becoming a biologist. I would say not just a biologist, but like a coral reef ichthyologist. I was obsessed with fish. I guess I got to study coral reefs so that I can hang out with the coolest fish for the rest of my life. And then from the time I was in middle school, I was pretty actively working towards that goal. I went and got a job at an aquarium store. I had seven or eight aquariums at my house from freshwater, saltwater, plants, all kinds of stuff. Um... I was writing to biology departments in Hawaii to see if I could volunteer in labs. <laughs> wow. Nobody was, nobody was <laughs> taking me seriously as a high school kid, but um, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And so I had a very 
clear idea of what I was going to do. I was going to go to undergrad somewhere with a big biology program, but other history and philosophy and other things. And then I was going to go to graduate school that specialized in marine biology. And I was going to get a PhD and then move to South Pacific and live on a tiny island that I could go scuba diving every day. Wow. Like that was huh. from the time I was 13 or 14. That was set. Wow. Okay. Uh, and That's so, a pretty clear, clear oh, path. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the camera was just this like side thing that like, oh, well, in the meantime, this weekend we can go to Stone Mountain and look for frogs and I'll try to take a picture of them. Uh, so I went to college. I went to Berkeley following this path, trying to become a biologist, bringing my camera along. You know, I got a summer job tracking elk in Point Reyes. And the camera was just there with me, the same Nikon Coolpix, you know, yeah. that I was borrowed from my dad. And I would just take pictures of the ants and flowers and whatever things on my way to finding the elk. Yeah. Um, and I remember <laughs> my uh, my housemate at the time, uh, Saring, he was like, there was a day where I decided to just order a bunch of prints. And those Apple had this print service, and so you could just load up some photos and print out whatever you wanted. And I remember one of them was that garter snake from Stone Mountain, and some were just some other flowers. I had them laid out on a table. I guess I was a sophomore at Berkeley. And Saring walked in the door, and he looked at all these pictures, and he's like, wow, you should be a professional photographer. And then he walked off into the kitchen and made himself a sandwich or something. And I just sat there. I was like, wow, nobody's ever told me that before. <laughs> and that was not that was not the yeah. moment that something changed. But it, it, I the look back on that. The heavens didn't open up and there no, wasn't no, no, a big, no. But like I look back on that <laughs> with a sense of, of, like, I remember how good it felt to be acknowledged or, or uh, complimented, I guess, in that yeah. way. I hadn't really, you know, made those prints to try to impress anybody. Mm-hmm. And yet I felt good having impressed my friend. Um, this is the end of sophomore year and the, really the big change, and this is really the reason I'm a photographer today is I got an email from one of my instructors who had seen me that whole semester, bring my camera out to these field trips and said, Hey, this photographer has contacted the biology department looking for an assistant. And I see you with your camera on the field trips every week. And this seems like this might be an interesting opportunity for you. So here's his phone number and just wanted to give you his contact information in case this is interesting. Right. And I thought, huh, um, I don't know anything about this. I didn't recognize a photographer. I didn't know what this would be like, but I was looking for any opportunity to spend the summer outside and it seemed like field work. And so I called him up. His name is David Lichwager. He didn't tell me much over the phone. Mm-hmm. He just said, I live in San Francisco. Why don't you come by my apartment and we can meet? I came there and he said, well, this is a project for National Geographic magazine. And mainly I just wanted to see that you're able to walk up the hill with a backpack because that's what I need you to do. <laughs> <laughs> didn't care that I was interested in photography. I mean, he, he, he did. He said, look, it's useful that you're interested in photography because it means you're going to pay closer attention. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. This first assignment was to drive town to Sequoia National Park with David and then rappel into these caves in the park that nobody was allowed into to find creatures that had just been discovered there. And so, yes, my job was to carry the bags like into the entrance of the cave, but then David handed me this like World War II tank uniform that he had in his basement. He's like, this is your caving suit and go follow the cave biologist. And he gave me a little, you know, eight and a half by 11 sheet of printer paper with like thumbnails of these creatures and a little description. And he said, go find these things. I'm gonna wait here at the entrance, set up my camera, and I'm gonna photograph everything here. So you would bring them out of the cave yeah, and then so he would photograph them against some sort of background little, little or something. Little black or white background. And so I was following uh, the, the cave biologist um, and just, yeah, the first couple of days into it, you know, you're squeezing into these tiny holes. I, I'd done this as a Boy Scout, like, once. Yeah. Right. And all of a sudden, we're in these places that are closed to the public, and you're in these underground little tunnels, and there's streams, and, you know. Were you scared? I mean, like. Oh, yeah. Well, a couple of days into it, you know, I'm following the biologist. We squeeze into this little space. And it's beautiful, and it's like you really, you're kind of upside down, and you kind of have to worm your way into this little cavern. You know, I mean, is it all it's... black? I mean, are you yeah, just... Yeah, yeah, we have headlights. You're, you're, I think you're required to have three lights with you. So two of them can fail, and you still have a light. And I'd say the space is mm, maybe six, seven feet wide, this, this kind of opening, and it's maybe two and a half feet, three feet tall. And there's a stream that kind of runs along the edge of it, which you kind of have to straddle. And so you're kind of, your legs are on one side, you're sort of propped up on your arms. And there's this like kind of white goo of wet, sandy, silty material. A couple of tree roots coming down. And he said, okay, well, the isopod, this is this little kind of roly-poly-like thing, clearish, whitish creature, maybe half a centimeter long. It's like it's in here with this white goopy stuff. So, so look for anything that's moving. The feeling was so intense that I just wanted more, you know? Oh, interesting. Yeah, I was, was going like, to say, this sounds boring. Like, like No, no. I'm, I'm like, all of a sudden, I'm getting paid to go look for bugs in a cave that nobody else is allowed in. You know, like, whoa, this is, in terms of stimulation, in terms of, like, this is opening new worlds to me that I didn't know existed. I didn't know photography could be could give you this kind of access to hidden, mysterious, awesome places. Yeah. And it just got better from there. I mean, before that trip ended, David's like, you seem kind of useful. Like, can you take some time off in September and come with me to Hawaii? And I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm still, you know, at this point, I'm a junior, I'm like going into my junior year. And so I'm figuring out how to take off time from school. Yeah. We get on a NOAA ship in Hawaii and we're catching fish and creatures and it's like, it was just this whole new world open to me about you know what photography 
could give you access to. So I think I've heard you talk about this. Your The first photo that you actually took for the magazine. Is this a Susan Welchman? Was yes. This the, yes. So I worked with Susan, and uh-huh. she scared the hell out of me, and I'm not even a photographer. <laughs> she was a formidable for totally. many years yeah. editor here, yeah. and, and she was the first person that you – Yeah. So – so, so how did that yeah. work? So okay, so I had gotten this grant. The grant meant I could meet editors, but that wasn't that wasn't entirely enough, right? It wasn't just okay. I'm a grantee. Let's give them an assignment, right? right. And uh, and I get a phone call, and I answer it, and she said, "This is Susan Welchman. I'm an editor at National Geographic. I hear you're going to be in Atlanta next week, and would you like a job?" And I just, I my eyes kind of went wide, and I said, <laughs> "Okay, yeah, sure." And she said, I need a photo of fire ants clumping together to form a raft in a puddle of water at Georgia Tech. When a fire ant colony gets flooded, they band together, they lock arms, and they that creates this life raft that they can survive. And the ants on the bottom kind of cycle up onto the top so they can breathe, and this whole the colony can survive flooding through this. Like a Noah's Ark for ants, totally, but totally. all ants. Okay. So she wanted a photo of this, and she felt like the scientists' photos weren't good enough. I said, no problem. I've seen David take a million pictures of ants. I bet I can, you know, uh, copy whatever he would have done. Right. And I know the gear I need, and I'm going to be in Atlanta. So I said yes. I went to the lab. I took a bunch of pictures. I sent them to Susan. I said, I want to go for a second day just to kind of make sure. I, I call her as I'm walking through the parking lot at Georgia Tech, and she said, I thought you said you were going to take better pictures than the scientists. Oh, oh, oh. These are not better pictures. And I was like, oh, wow. yeah. just feeling the life drain out of me. And I just remember thinking, I'm on the phone, I'm just thinking, well, I hadn't met Susan at this point, but yeah. I was like, well, I think I'm going to have to wait for Susan to retire to have another shot. <laughs> like, that's fine. I can wait. I can work another 10 years and just, you know, because I, I knew all these stories from from Joel, from David, from Christian, who had, like, met an editor. And it, it took them five years of working on their own projects, yeah, sending right, in work. I didn't right. expect that this was just going to happen. All right, I screwed it up. I'm going to have to wait for her to retire and for everybody there to forget who I was and how badly I screwed up. And, and I'll try again in 10 years. That's really what I thought. But she didn't hang up. She just said, look, I thought this was going to be better. You didn't solve these problems, but keep sending me pictures. And that little bit where it was not like you're fired. It was just like, this is not good enough, but you're not done yet. Like, the door is not closed. You have more opportunities. And I remember, I would send her pictures every couple of hours, you know. The main problem, I was trying to make this clump of ants, this raft of ants out of like three ants. Yeah, how like, do you, you need do more rants? Oh, more <laughs> oh, ants. <yeah. laughs> so I'm working with the lab, and there's this the, this technician at the lab who's who's like teaching me all these techniques about how to coat the glass with this special. So how do you do this? Film. How do you even take a picture of a clump oh, of ants? Oh, sure. No, we have this tiny little aquarium, a little glass box, and you have a and you have a bowl full of ants. With, I think they have like a Teflon coated rim so that they they couldn't crawl out of it, and you just kind of scoop them up and stick them in this puddle of water. And they all clump together, and then you have a just naturally. The they know, oh, yeah, it's yeah, the yeah, drill. Yeah. Let's do yeah, it. Yeah, well, oh, we're wet. Like let's let's all grab each other, 
And the, the, the biggest technical challenge here is that the, if you're shooting sideways and you want to show half the ants underwater and half the ants above water, the water forms this little lip, the meniscus, against the glass, and it creates this really nasty, out-of-focus band of water uh-huh. that splits the image. It makes it look really ugly, and that's the problem I had not yet fixed that Susan had expected me to fix, mm-hmm. that I said I could fix. So I was like, I'm going to fix this by photographing it from above. And she's like, <laughs> I didn't realize you can't, that doesn't look like anything from above. Right. So here I am like, oh, I actually don't know how to fix this problem. <laughs> but it turned out that the guy in the lab who was working with me did know how to fix the problem. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we know about this. You use this thing called Floropel. It's a chemical that you can dip the glass into and you bake it, and it makes the glass repel water instead of, attach a stick uh, and it, it makes the glass hydrophobic instead of hydrophilic and what that means is that meniscus of water that normally would get sucked up yeah doesn't happen and so now you get a very crisp edge and that's how i eventually got this photo it's like i needed this little technical trick mm-hmm. that only the sci- scientists knew right to solve this problem and and so you know, I, I solved that problem. She's like, good, but you need more ants. And so I dump more ants in there and I take a picture. She's like, this clump of ants is too round. And so I poke <laughs> one end of it and it would be a little bit amorphic. She's like, yeah, that's pretty good. But, you know, what would be really good is if you had an ant that was like at the edge of the raft and it was like reaching out over the water. <laughs> and so at the end of the second day, I was like, okay, I'll come in on the third day. I know I only have two days. I'll just come in on my own time. I think I can get a better picture of that. And so I got this picture of an ant, like, reaching out out across the water, you know, out into the unknown. The Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> yeah. ant from Titan- the Titanic yeah, totally, ant. Totally. <laughs> and the, and when the amazing – she wrote back and she's like, this is what makes a photograph, a National Geographic photograph. Well, I got to tell you, I think – and feel free to argue with me on this, but, like – I got to say that, like, your story on parasites, the zombie parasites, has got to be sort of the Mount Everest of that sort of conceptual cool story. Like, I mean, it grabs you right off the bat, you know, the way that parasites sort of um, take over other 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 insects and other, other things and control them. But on the other hand, how in the world are you going to show this, these tiny little things? So how did you come up with that idea and like convince yourself you could actually do this i feel like the parasite story was i talked about these kind of turning points that set me on a new path that that sort of guided my career and that project was absolutely one of them and i think it shaped how i think about approaching photography and and the sort of idea of using a technical approach to show a story in a new way i didn't approach that story with that mindset at the beginning. With what mindset? I didn't approach the parasite story with the idea that I am going to try to find a new way of showing these creatures, and I'm going to use a sort of new technical tool set to do that. Uh, I didn't have any kind of plan about how I was going to do that. Uh All I knew was that my friend, who was a—my friend Sarah was my classmate at Berkeley, who had gone on to do her Ph.D. on parasites— and we had a conversation on the phone one day that was like, hey, you should really pitch a story about parasites. And she's like, you've got to do a story about host-manipulating parasites. 
Like these are parasites that can control the minds of their hosts. And we like, we have some in our lab. I remember learning about some in my courses at Berkeley. Yeah. I just thought, oh, yeah, that is crazy. I should do that. Because what does this mean, though? What, uh, mind, host, they control. The, how, what, what is it like? Can you give me an example? Sure. Of so, yeah, the one that I learned about as, in college was this thing called a horsehair worm is a parasite that grows up inside the, the body of a cricket. And it, when it wants to come out, it's an aquatic worm. It has to emerge in water. And it's, it's inside of an animal that lives on land. And so it takes over the mind of the cricket. It forces it to find a puddle of water and drown itself so that the parasite can safely emerge in the water. And it turns out there's just hundreds of these different examples of a parasite that, like, hijacks the behavior of its host yeah. to do its own bidding. Well, I've seen the video. You've got some video online that you can, you yeah. know, that our listeners could could see, and we'll put those in the show notes. But um, where this thing comes out, and it's like this long, I mean, it's a l- crazy oh, long worm. 20 times longer than the than the cricket it lives in. Yeah, it's Yeah, crazy. it's like, a, like an uncoiled rope or something. <laughs> yeah. But I got to tell you, and this still keeps me awake at night, is the parasite that gets, it wants to live in a cat, but it gets into a mouse and then controls the mind of the mouse so that it will go hang around near cats. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that's is that a real thing? Is that it's a totally a real thing? It's not one I photographed because it was just one I was of these. Say, that, how do you even? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I had to be really selective about where in that story is there good visual potential. Like, where can I kind of come in with a camera and and open the door to this broader question right. about how parasites are able to do this? And that's kind of that story taught me a lot of different things about like, wait a minute. The power of photography to shape somebody's perception about the natural world, the power of photography to capture somebody's attention, hold their attention long enough to appreciate a more complex story. Yeah. Um, and just thinking about how powerful it is to come up with a new way of seeing a subject. Yeah. Okay, so I would be completely remiss if I didn't ask about your menagerie at your house. (laughs) Sure. So I've heard that you, because you take these pictures of various creatures, that you often bring them into your own house, your living space. What, who are some of the creatures currently inhabiting? I currently have a shed full of jellyfish. So a shed, shed, well, a shed, it's a, it's a, it sounds like a Bay Area band, (laughs) shed full of jellyfish. It's, it's a, I guess it's more, a more precise term would be a detached garage, but it's, it's a, it's a storage space that I keep all my kind of photography equipment. And I first got this idea uh, with the bee project of, of keeping honeybees in the space and kind of drilling a hole in the wall and letting them come and go. And it meant I could do this project at home. And I was flying around the country, visiting aquariums to work on this project. And I just remembered like, wait a minute, I used to have aquariums at home. I used to work at a pet shop where we sold jellyfish. Like, this is a thing I could probably do at least the brunt of the technical development at home. Yeah. And uh, so Steve Spina at New England Aquarium said, well, if you want to do that, like, let me know and I can help you understand kind of what what's required to do that. And, you know, we can ship you jellyfish. And How many so, jellyfish do you have? Right now, I think it's about 50 or 60. 50 or 60 jellyfish. Yeah, most of them the- are like, half an inch long. Okay. All right. There's seven or eight 
big ones that are like six inches across, moon jellies. And it's been phenomenal. Just go back there and and uh, stare at jellyfish swirling in a tank and think about how to capture the story of these amazing creatures. Well, I can't wait to see it, man. Anand Varma, thank you so much. Thank you. To see more of Anand's work, including the video of zombie parasites, as well as his photographs of hummingbirds, bees, and bats, check out the links in our show notes. They're right there in your podcast app. You can also find his work on our Instagram feed, at NatGeo. So this is our last episode of season three. Man, it went by fast. But fear not. Our intrepid producers, together with Amy Briggs and I, are already working on a bunch of fascinating new episodes. We'll be launching season four this fall, so stay tuned. This episode of National Geographic's Overheard is produced by Devar Ardalan, with help from Brian Gutierrez and Jacob Pinter. Our editors are Robert Molesky and Ibi Caputo. Our fact checker is Michelle Harris. Hans Dale Sue composed our theme music and engineers our episodes. This podcast is a production of National Geographic Partners. Whitney Johnson is the Director of Visuals and Immersive Experiences. Susan Goldberg is National Geographic's Editorial Director. And I'm your host, Peter Gwynn. Thanks for listening, and see y'all soon. <laughs>